0: We're at the end of Matthew chapter eleven. I'm going to read from verse twenty to verse thirty, and I want to note something just before I publicly read scripture and before we engage in it together. I was thinking this morning how, in the beginning of Matthew eleven, Jesus teaches those who are walking with him about John the Baptist, and he asks them rhetorical questions. He said, "What did you go out in the wilderness to see? You're just looking for someone in soft clothing. What did you go out there to see?" And the idea was to remind those who would listen that John the Baptist had spoken prophetically concerning Jesus. It was another way to say, if you have ears, hear. And I guess before I read this, I understand the temptation to go through the motions. We're finite, we're tired, we're distracted, so this isn't a guilt trip kind of thing, but we should at least be aware that you've been here before. You've probably sat in a church and you've heard the guy with the microphone read part of the Bible. You may be even familiar with the text. There's a lot about this as a routine and normal. Those can be gifts to us, but also we should be aware. Maybe I would ask you the same question that Jesus asked What did you come to church to see? What are we doing here? Is there an expectation? Is God alive? Is Scripture living and active? Can these words change? These are legitimate questions. So maybe before I read in the public reading of Scripture, let's remember what it is that we believe. We believe these words are living and active. We believe that Jesus is not dead but alive. We believe that His Spirit indwells His saints. We believe that we're gathered in His presence. That this is not a mere exercise of learning or thinking. But that God Himself desires us to know Him. And we've been known through Jesus. So I want to read, and as much as you can, I want to ask you to read along. I know that in some ways that's not possible. You're quiet and I'm the one at the mic. But let's listen now to the words of Scripture. This is the 20th verse of Matthew 11. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. Then Jesus, He, began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray together for a moment. God, we say thank you for your words. These are indeed the words of the Lord. So make us grateful and aware I ask that our time considering this part of Matthew would indeed be good news to us I pray we wouldn't read the gospel but miss the goodness of it I ask that our hearts and our minds would be more drawn to Jesus that we would find His yoke to be easy, His burden to be light. God, You know our minds and our hearts with a perfect knowledge. Better than we know ourselves, better than we know one another. So whatever good work You desire this morning, Holy Spirit, please do that. For places of hardness, give us sight and break. For places we are hiding or fearful, beckon us by mercy. For distractions and running away, the kind of escape we often do, I pray that you would cause us to face our own souls. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I said earlier that we kind of we can't avoid to go through the motions. I think there's some wisdom in life in realizing you're going to go through the motions. To embrace good habits and to see the good in them, but not let them lull you to sleep is sort of one of the secrets to life. I think that's what Ecclesiastes would tell us. And so right now, I'm going to do the thing that is common, and I'm going to give a speech, so to speak. Do you remember having to give a speech? Maybe like fifth grade for the first one and then up through high school. One of the most popular speech competitions in Florida is called the Tropicana. And one of the things that you have to do at first is not only choose a topic, but then decide what type of speech you're going to do. Are you attempting to make people laugh or be entertained? Are you trying to give them more information? Are you trying to compel them towards something? And if you choose that one where you compel someone, then what you say is, I am doing a persuasive speech. I want to persuade you of something. And so maybe... Just to amuse me, I want to announce this morning that I am attempting a persuasive speech. And one of the things that you're taught for the structure, the most basic outline, probably of a paper and any kind of written communication for sure, as well as spoken, is you're supposed to tell people what you're going to tell them, then you're supposed to tell them, and then you're supposed to tell them what you told them. Have you heard this before? You guys are getting flashbacks to some teacher that made you memorize this? So, can I tell you what I'm going to tell you? My desire is to show you that Jesus is irresistibly compelling. That He is to be desired and chased after and cherished. And I want to persuade you of this by a few reasons that He gives from His own teaching here in Matthew chapter 11. The first reason that Jesus is compelling, what we're going to look at, is because... He is our rescue from judgment. He is a rescue from judgment. And what I might say there, if you're going to hang just one word over the top of it, would be the word must. Why should we come to Jesus? We must. That's going to be the first compelling reason. A second reason, I think Jesus teaches this right in this, why should we be compelled or pressed toward Jesus? And that is, not only is He our rescue from judgment, but He is our path to relationship with the Father. There is only one way to be connected to the God of the universe. There's only one way to be truly spiritual. Only one way to be truly alive, and that is through Jesus. So we have relationship with the Father through Him. And Then finally, the reason we should be compelled toward Jesus, the reason that He should be irresistible when we think about Him, is that He is the only place, the only person that offers true rest for your soul. He is a rescue from judgment. He is the place of relationship with our Creator, with the Father. And He is the only place for true rest for our soul. So, If you think about it in one word, we might say must. We must come to Jesus. Second, we might, we might think of the word maker. He reconciles us to our maker for our very purpose of existing. And then finally, mercy. Mercy is what draws us to Jesus. So I'm going to use this, this is a framework And now let's look through each of these and consider what has been said. It may seem strange to you that Jesus is compelling when he starts with words like this, woe, woe to you. I like to think of him saying it in the voice of that one lady in the Princess Bride who says like, shame or something like that. Remember her? A little lady who's like, shame. Remember her? This is kind of the concept here. Whoa. Like, woe to you. Legitimate judgment to you. It's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Verse 21, whoa, whoa, whoa. Judgment, judgment, judgment all over. And then what does the thing end with? Just a few sentences later, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how is it that both these things simultaneously are compelling? How do they make us desire Jesus? Well, this first one, how, how do we make sense of the woes? What Jesus says clearly as he opens his teaching here is that there ought to be a connection between the mighty, awesome power of God and repentance. So if you're looking for themes as you're reading through the Bible, you should look at the connection between works and repentance. His complaint in verse 20 is that these cities where he did most of his mighty works, they did not repent. The implication here is that where God shows up, we're supposed to respond. Where God does miracles, where he grants things, where he's given graciously, we should respond. And what he's saying is, all of you, you are receiving from God, but you're not responding. You've been shown truth, but you're not repenting. So, verse 20, he says, there's mighty works, should be repentance, there's not. Verse 21, mighty works had been done in you, then they would have repented. In other words, he says, here's the way the real world works. When you receive from God, And understand his power, you should repent. He says later in verse 23, similarly about Capernaum. He says, Capernaum mighty works. If these had been done in you, had been done in Sodom, they would have remained. The idea of remaining is theirs, that they would have turned. They would have repented. So the real pattern of life should be something like this. I acknowledge that all that I have and all that is good in the world is because of God's power, his gracious power. I see that and I repent. What Jesus complains about is that all the places that were most closely associated with his ministry refused that. They broke the logic of real life. They received and received and received and received and received and did not see. They could not see what was being given them in Jesus. And so he tells them, you are going to face terrible judgment. Now, a couple things about these cities. This is an intriguing point concerning Jesus and what he did and accomplished. You know what's odd is that the first two cities that he mentions, we know very little about them. We know that a few of the disciples, probably up to three, it seems like Peter included, were from Bethsaida. But we don't have a record at all. Have you noticed up to this point he's saying, whoa, these works have been done in your cities, but you could page back through Matthew's account and you're not going to find him working miracles in those places. It's a good reminder that Scripture is a redemptive history. It's God selectively revealing what is necessary to be accountable to Him and to know what is required, essentially, to walk in faith toward His Son. But it is not an exhaustive history. The Bible does not give for us a blow-by-blow account of every meal, every step, and every miracle of Jesus. But we know from His words here that He was doing the same thing in these other cities that He was in places like Capernaum where we saw more of His ministry. So if Matthew would have wanted, we could have had a Matthew chapter 6, parts 1, 2, 3, and 4 of a set of days in Bethsaida, apparently. John chapter 21 accounts for this. John's gospel, he said this to summarize. After having written his account, he says in verse 25 of the 21st chapter, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Just ready for it? This is an understatement. He says there are many other things that Jesus did. Then he clarifies were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I think as a matter of metaphor or hyperbole, this would make sense. John is essentially saying Jesus is amazing and there's no way I could account for his whole life in ministry, literally. But also at the deepest levels of reality, this is true because nothing happens unless Jesus upholds it by the work of his power. So this next sentence that I'm going to share is not possible apart from Jesus working miraculously, because every breath is a gift. If I say, hello, my name is Lance, Jesus just did that, in some sense. Do you you see what we're saying? So John is essentially saying, you cannot account for every single thing that's been done, Jesus is down there at the center of it, So this is not an exhaustive history of all that he has accomplished. And it's really astounding. Because the account that is given to us in Matthew, there is miracle after miracle after miracle, and still we find a disturbing level of blindness in those places where Jesus has most closely ministered. Now, was this a surprise to him? In other words, sometimes people get judgmental or they sort of lash out. Like you maybe have pronounced a judgment on someone because of something they did to you. It's a reaction. And we do not want to see in Jesus a sort of changing of passions. Where he's desperate and sad because he's been rejected by someone who he he thought was going to respond. The reality is that this has been prophesied that those who are receiving the goodness of God would, by hardness of heart, reject Him. Isaiah chapter 1. This is one of the prophets who had been given. He said, Hear, O heavens, and give ear. O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Jesus knew, as the Lord, as the Holy One of Israel, that He would face rejection from those who were closest to Him. And now He cries out for them. No sign will be enough. No flute playing will get them to dance. He just used that a little bit earlier in Matthew 11. No dirge sad enough for them to mourn. They are hardened of heart and believe that they are safe there's an interesting phrase here, what he says of Capernaum. He asks Capernaum a question that seems sort of odd or rhetorical. He says, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? And then he says, you'll be brought down to Hades. It seems from historical record that Capernaum perhaps was a particularly proud city, that maybe they had as a kind of slogan that they were righteous to the point where they, like Enoch, would just be lifted to heaven, that it was a place of paradise. I like to think of it as their version of a water tower logo. You know how you drive around in small towns somewhere and at some point the mayor and a bunch of his friends around were like, we need to label our town, that's why no one's coming here. I know we're 100 miles off in the middle of nowhere, but the reason people aren't coming is we don't have a good slogan. And so then they write a slogan on the water tower. Have you you ever been to these small towns? It makes me wonder if it ever works. You know, you're like driving to North Georgia on your way to Asheville and you weren't going to go to Jasper. But then you looked and you saw the water tower, and you were like, honey, you know what? This is the first mountain town. Why are we still driving? And they just pull over. I think the idea here, it seems to be from historical record, that Capernaum was proud of itself. They thought, we are a place of paradise. We'll be raised up to heaven. And then Jesus, because he's an amazing teacher, he asked them this question back, will you be raised up to heaven? And then a word of warning, no, you'll be brought down to Hades. You think that you're more righteous than other people, but the reality is is that you are more blind. What we learn about from these cities is that there is a higher level, a deeper level of accountability for those who have received much light. Oftentimes, hardness of heart is not an information problem. Many times we try to solve the most difficult parts of our minds and our hearts by simply getting more information. We believe, oftentimes, that more info will save us. So then how do we give an accounting for these cities who had Jesus' very teaching, His very presence, His very miracles, His signs day after day after day, and did not see? Oftentimes, our problems with repentance are not that we need more information. It is simply that we have not applied and appropriated the things that are the most true and necessary. Many times when someone says something like this, I just don't understand. Could I ask a question? I just don't understand. Oftentimes, that means they understand perfectly. They just do not like what has been said. These cities did not like what has been said, and that is that they needed to repent of their own self-righteousness, essentially that they needed a savior. So maybe I would be persuasive in this way. I'm going to start here where Jesus started in verse 20 through 24. We must be compelled to come to Jesus because without him we are utterly lost. There is no other hope. Without Jesus, we are completely and only under the wrath and judgment of God. If you were listening to this message, and Jesus says in verse 24, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable from the land of Sodom. The thing that you should say is, wait, there's a judgment? And the answer is yes, there is a judgment coming. A day of accountability coming. When what you have done with Jesus will be the one thing that matters. There is coming a day for everyone where no matter what they have thought of Jesus up to this point, they will need His righteousness more than they need anything else in the whole world. Our deepest need is to be rescued from the coming judgment. And Jesus says, if you would repent and receive me, you would be rescued from this judgment. The Bible uses a lot of different illustrations for this. The reality is is that Jesus speaks truth and just because He speaks the truth of coming judgment does not make Him mean. He is loving them by giving them a warning. Many times the things that are most awe-inspiring in the world, the most beautiful, the most true, the most powerful, are not perfectly or easily safe. A couple of years ago, I got to visit Yosemite Falls with my family. Yosemite Falls is one of the most powerful and immaculate sort of awe-inspiring waterfalls that North America has to offer. And when we went, it was absolutely raging with water, just raging. Whatever snow had melted or rain had come, the day that we got to go, it was very, very powerful And they have a nice little touristy spot where you can walk up and there's a bridge that's made of wood. It's a place to take pictures, and it's sort of crowded around there. And as you walk, before you even get to that, you begin to feel the temperature drop from the power of this rushing water coming down the waterfall. And what seemed extremely just picturesque and beautiful from far back, the closer you get, what hits you is, yes, it's beauty, but more than that, it's power. And we got up to this walk place where the bridge is and stuff, and I thought to myself, I want to go around over there on those rocks. First of all, we can get a better picture instead of the eight million tourists. But also, I want to try to get really close to the bottom of these falls. That'd be fun. There's a bunch of rocks you can get around there. I want to get closer to the falls. And what I realized that as I climbed closer, eventually, The mist and water in the air from smashing, falling water into the river below was creating such a mist that I was soaked from head to toe. I realized that the coolness of the air that had begun to form as we walked closer to the walkway became freezing to the point of trying to grab the rocks and go closer to it. I'm like shaking, like, man, I'm cold. That not only was the wetness apparent and the coolness apparent, But there was a waterfall wind, I don't know how else to describe it, but wind from the falling water. And there came a point where I came around a rock, and I stepped out, and it became very apparent to me that there's a reason the walkway doesn't continue closer to the bottom of the falls. And that is is that I was in danger. Like the little cartoon guy, I'm in danger. Like I was in danger. It got to the point where, trying to go around this rock, that the wind from the waterfall was difficult to press into, and I thought, I might slip back. More than that, the water and the mist in the air was so apparent and hitting me in the face, I couldn't keep my eyes open. I was beginning to shake with cold and excitement and nervousness because the power of this beautiful thing that was there, I was in danger, and here's what had to happen. In order for me to pull back from that moment, I had to hide myself back behind the rock. Now, some of you are Bible scholars, and you know that I'm a preachery guy, so you know where this is headed. There's imagery throughout Scripture of what Jesus is for us. He's often called a rock to be hidden. And I think that goes all the way back to Moses, who interacts face-to-face with God. He goes up on the side of the mountain. He has a conversation. And then he utters what Charles Spurgeon once said was the most audacious claim in the history of mankind. Moses says to God, show me your glory. Hey God, uh, yeah, puny human here. Show me you in all of your glory. And God says, uh, I don't know that you know what you're asking. So let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in this rock. You've got to be hidden up. You've got to be covered. And then you'll see just barely the trailing edge of my glory go by. What's the story here? What's the imagery? Then it gets pulled from Moses in Exodus 33 through the rest of the Bible. The imagery is essentially this. To come into the presence of God in your own righteousness, your own fallenness as a human being is to die. Unless you be hidden, unless you be covered, you will be lost. That's the story of Scripture. Like saying, I love space. It's amazing. And jumping out of a ship with no spacesuit on. You'll be met with Minus 455 degrees. You must be covered. You must be hidden. And what Jesus is saying, why should you come to Him? Because you must. There's no other way to be rescued. He says to these cities who prided themselves on righteousness, do not try. Do not go to judgment day and parade up your own righteousness before the Father. You will be lost. So the first compelling reason To entrust yourself to Jesus is that you must. Without Him, you will be lost forever. There is nothing but punishment due those who are rebellious and hard-hearted, who have sinned not only by commission, but omission in the entirety of our lives. Judgment Day is coming. Why come to Jesus? You simply must. Second, Jesus gives us an inside look into something that is profound. He begins to pray to the Father. This is a master. This is an intimate moment between a son and a father, and we have some of the recorded here for us. John 17 is perhaps the most popular of the prayers of Jesus, but this is a moment as well. And what we find is that Jesus is able to restore us to relationship with the Father in a way that no one else can. He says there's a mystery here. That what has been known concerning me has been hidden from the wise, in other words, the proud, those of earthly wisdom, and revealed to little children. For this was your gracious will. Later, he's going to make this more explicit in Matthew 18. He's going to say, "Unless you become like a child, you will not be able to come to me." What we learn is essentially this: you cannot be godly, you cannot be spiritual. You cannot have mere religion. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have your Maker. That is what He is teaching. You must come to Jesus because otherwise you are estranged from the Father. Here's what Hebrews chapter 1 says concerning Jesus. The way that He is utterly unique. Utterly and completely the nature of God. It says this in Hebrews 1, 1 1-4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, the Father is communicated to us by the Son. Jesus is not merely a good representative or a mouthpiece for the Father. Jesus is God incarnate, He is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. We are, by nature of our sin, separated from our Creator. Only through Jesus are we reconciled. It's as though he says to those Jewish towns who are listening in, if you desire to know Yahweh, if you want relationship with the Creator, then you must receive me or you will always be estranged. Jesus alone gives us relationship restored and renewed and atoning death with our father. Jesus alone is a name in which we can pray. Jesus alone has a name that is above every other name. There is only one mediator between the mankind between mankind and the father, Jesus the Son. So what has happened here is that we must come to Jesus because it's the only rescue from condemnation and judgment. And we must come to Jesus because there is no other way back to God. Jesus has made the path exclusive and narrow. If you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. This is what Jesus is giving us as a compelling reason to come to Him. Finally, and this is perhaps most compelling, I think Scripture gives it clearly this idea that it's kindness that leads us to repentance. How will these cities repent? Because Jesus offers rest for our souls. Maybe you'd say to yourself, what is this person like? I hear Christians talk about a relationship with Jesus. Well, I don't get into relationships unless I know the person, because to entrust yourself to someone is risky. So you want to know, what is this person like? And here at the end of Matthew 11, we have one of the most unique sections of Scripture. Jesus, in his own words, tells us not only his character, not only his works, not only his aims, his goals, his will, but his very heart. What will Jesus do if you entrust yourself to him? How will he respond if you bring your sin and confess it? What if you are lowly and not impressive? Will he reject you? What is the default at the heart of Jesus? And what he says is profound, that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Gentleness does not mean weak. This word here for gentle was already used in in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Now, sometimes when we hear meekness or gentleness, we think weakness or wimpy. I want you to think just for a moment about this, that gentleness actually is only possible because of power. Gentleness is only possible. In fact, the opportunity for gentleness increases with the gap between what is powerful and what is being handled. I knew a lot of farmers growing up. And some of the best farmers are like the most rugged of men. There is a beauty, a kind of godliness, I think, in the, in the sort of work that it takes. The hardening of hands, the calluses, the right kind of roughness. I went on a, a trip one time with a number of these farmers and just watching them work we were pouring concrete and building walls, and like watching them work. I remember thinking, if there's ever a war or an invasion, I want these men with me. Just just watching the way that they handled themselves. If you're not a little bit gruff, like if you're genteel and sort of weak and wimpy, you're not gonna. Oh, this be a, you're not gonna help a birthing calf, right? You're not gonna. Wait, the calf is this. You know what I'm saying? A cow. The calf. Not the birthing cab, but you, you know what I'm saying. You're not going to be if you are weak and wimpy. You're not going to throw your hand in the middle of greasy, malfunctioning ball bearings in the tractor tire. And I remember watching one of these gruff, tough farmers hold his granddaughter. And when you watch this burly giant of a man with calloused hands and grease everywhere who knows how to command hired hands, when you watch him delicately hold with tears coming down this little girl and then sit and rock, you know what you can say because of the the contrast between these things? You can say, what a gift the gentleness of this man. And you can say that because if The man was not gentle. If his power were out of control, then he would have with ease the capacity to harm, to crush. Jesus says, I am gentle at heart. And it is astounding only because he is powerful beyond imagination. Jesus has a kind of piercing holiness that means whenever He wants, with justice, He could burn away sinners. Jesus has a kind of power over all things that He could snap a finger and get rid of His hunger or His thirst. He could crush a city He could rightfully remove the dirty from his presence. But he is gentle. What he says is the default of my heart. This is in the very heart of Jesus. When someone comes to him, he is not vindictive nor harsh. He does not overreact not like trying to go to a parent in the midst of their busyness and difficulty in the backyard and you go to ask them a question about something you need and you worry in that moment that they're going to take the power that they're doing their job with and turn it on you. Jesus is gentle. And this is why we should be compelled toward him. Because he never punishes for punishment's sake. He never teaches a lesson to teach a lesson's sake. He is not overly harsh. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. His very heart beats with mercy toward those who draw near. He says not only is he gentle in heart, but he is lowly. The idea here is that he is humble. His perfections, his righteousness, his power does not make him an elite who pulls back from those who are beneath him. I might say that he is approachable. And again, I ask you, if someone told you a story of great approachability, how would they start it? No one says, you know, I needed to grabbed something from the mailbox the other day and my mailman came up and I couldn't believe it. He was really approachable. My mailman was just really approachable. You might say, well, you just mean he was friendly or something. You would never say something like, no, I just can't believe that he actually condescended to be in my presence. I I could say hello to him and he looked at me in the eye. He even gave me something and we interacted together. You never make an approachable comment about someone who is on your level. But if you hear a story about a celebrity, what is often the gushing It's just how approachable they were. I couldn't believe it. And what's so funny is that the, the sort of pretext to this conversation, the assumption is, you know how good they are and how bad we are? You know how rich they are and how unbelievably poor we are? You know how talented they are and how not talented we are? Well, I went and I asked this celebrity a question and they were so approachable. What they could have done is said, get away from me, swine. Or they could have said, someone take the peasant away. Isn't that what you're trying to say? You're trying to say that something about the goodness of this person means they would have every right to be like, be gone. And here's what Jesus says, at the very heart of me, I am perfect, holy, powerful, set apart in every single way, but I am completely and utterly graspable. I am with you. Maybe I could say it like this There is no lowness that is too low for Jesus. There is no farness that is too far away from the nearness of Jesus. There is no lostness from which Jesus cannot be found. There is no blindness wherein Jesus cannot be seen. In, in response to our estate, in response to our sin and our lostness, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not create an ivory tower and get more separation as the great elite of heaven. But instead, he did not regard equality with God to be grasped, and he emptied himself. He took on human flesh and became a servant. He was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And God bestowed on him the name that is above every single name. So there's no name given in heaven or on earth or under the earth by which we must be saved. That is the reality of Jesus. So you should turn to him not only because he's the only rescue for your soul, not only because he'll restore relationship with the Father, but because he can give you rest You know what it's like to be in the presence of someone who does not hold it over you, who doesn't lord it over you, who is not overly harsh, who's not responsive and dramatic? To be received, to be loved, to be cared for, to have someone draw near to you is to find rest. Augustine once said that we will be restless, our souls will be restless until we find rest in thee. And Jesus offers this rest to those who would receive him. And if you worry that coming to Jesus is going to place on you a kind of religious burden wherein your life will get worse, he says, no, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Following Jesus is like the yoke and the burden of receiving a rescue flotation device when drowning in the ocean. The yoke and the burden of following Jesus is like getting more helium pumped into the balloon. So, should you come to Jesus? The answer is yes. You should come to Jesus because there is no hope for escape from judgment apart from him. You should come to Jesus because he will reconcile you to the Father. Your created, your creator, and created purpose will be restored in him. And yes, you should turn to Jesus because he will give you rest. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? He will give you rest. Let's pray.